This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, December 1st. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Doug Blair. Americans are familiar with the idea of a dystopian future dominated by an inescapable metaverse and ruled over by big tech overlords. Films like Blade Runner or Minority Report depict a world conquered by technology and the terrifying consequences. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg wants to take that world from the silver screen and make it our own. Heritage Foundation Research Fellow in Technology Policy Kara Frederick joins the show to discuss the metaverse and how dire the consequences might be if tech is allowed to take over our lives. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Kara Frederick, let's hit our top news stories of the day. Today, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments for a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade. The abortion case known as Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Center originated in Mississippi. In 2018, Mississippi passed a law restricting abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The state's only abortion clinic filed a lawsuit in response, and now it's up to the nine Supreme Court justices to determine if the policy set in place by Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional or not. Former Vice President Mike Pence spoke at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday and expressed his optimism over this high-profile case. As we stand here today, we may well be on the verge of an era when the Supreme Court sends Roe v. Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs. While Republican leaders issued their support for the reversal of Roe v. Wade, Democrats urged the Supreme Court to uphold abortion. During a virtual event Monday, New Hampshire Democrat Senator Jean Shaheen said Americans should expect a revolution if Roe v. Wade is overturned. I think if you want to see a revolution, go ahead, outlaw Roe v. Wade and see what the response is of the public, particularly young people. The justices are expected to announce their ruling on the case sometime in June 2022. On Tuesday, Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, announced that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows had reached an initial agreement to cooperate with the United States House Select Committee on the January 6th attack. In a statement announcing Meadows' cooperation with the committee, Thompson said, Mr. Meadows has been engaging with the Select Committee through his attorney. He has produced records to the committee and will soon appear for an initial deposition. Meadows was initially subpoenaed by the committee in September, but refused to comply, citing former President Trump's executive privilege. Meadows' lawyer, George Terwilliger, also made a statement on Tuesday saying, As we have from the beginning, we continue to work with the select committee and its staff to see if we can reach an accommodation that does not require Mr. Meadows to waive executive privilege or to forfeit the long-standing position that senior White House aides cannot be compelled to testify before Congress. The White House previously announced that it had no plans to assert privilege over Meadows' testimony. On Tuesday, New York City became the first city in America to open government-sanctioned drug injection sites for those addicted to illegal drugs. The sites are meant to prevent drug overdose deaths. New York City officials report that more than 2,000 people died from drug overdoses in the city in 2020. Mayor Bill de Blasio is backing the program and said in a statement, overdose prevention centers are a safe and effective way to address the opioid crisis. 
Individuals struggling with drug addiction will be able to inject heroin and other drugs while being supervised by medical professionals. The sites will also provide drug users with options for treatment programs. It is still unclear whether the program will face legal challenges. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Heritage Foundation Research Fellow in Technology Policy, Kara Frederick, as we discuss the metaverse and how dire the consequences might be if tech is allowed to take over our lives. Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you about the most popular resource on the Heritage Foundation website, the Guide to the Constitution. More than 100 scholars have contributed to create a unique line-by-line analysis of our Constitution. The guide is intended to provide a brief and accurate explanation of each clause of the Constitution as envisioned by the framers and as applied in contemporary law. There has never been a more important time to have an understanding of our founding document. So if you want to learn more about the Constitution, go ahead and visit heritage.org constitution or simply search for Heritage Guide to the Constitution. Our guest today is Kara Frederick, a Heritage Foundation Research Fellow in Technology Policy, focusing on big tech. She was also a member of Facebook's Global Security Counterterrorism Analysis Program and a team lead for Facebook headquarters' regional intelligence team in Menlo Park, California. Kara, welcome so much to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg recently announced the creation of Meta which is a new company, will serve as the parent company for Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and a variety of other uh, applications underneath that sort of brand. Practically, what does Meta mean for these platforms? What has changed now? Yeah, I don't know if practically is the right word for it, but the idea of the metaverse originally came from a dystopian sci-fi novel in the 90s, Snow Crash, and this was supposed to be, you know, a virtual world that should terrify the reader. Um, Mm. It probably did terrify a lot of the readers in those days, and now it's terrifying us in real life. So what it actually means for these, um, you know, all of the applications and the, the companies that Facebook has really gobbled up, like WhatsApp, like Instagram, um, all of these companies that they own and that is now subsumed under Meta is that Facebook is only going to grow. Mm. So not the the regular platform of Facebook that's going to retain its name, but it's expanding. Uh, Zuckerberg's been really, really good at diversifying. So mm. he saw something great in Kevin Systrom with Instagram. He saw something great when it came to WhatsApp and Brian Acton and Jan Coom mm. and what they had done with their encrypted messaging platform. And he recognized that this is what Facebook needed to become something akin to Google's alphabet. If you remember when they right. rebranded themselves as, you know, you had Google search and then you had YouTube, which was a video platform, which sort of grew out of, remember Vine, uh, when those, <laughs> yeah, those right, short, right. short, um, uh, videos and and now Facebook is sort of copying that with real. So Facebook is, is making itself, uh, bigger. It's, uh, basically making an incursion into your everyday life with this metaverse conception. And I think it bears sort of defining what this concept of a metaverse is. And I've heard it talked about as, you know, a virtual world. Mm -hmm. But a way to think about it is it's a mix of augmented reality, virtual reality and gaming. Uh, Mm. They're also trying to institute some uh, NFTs, these non-fungible tokens, where it's sort of like the the digital deeds to digital assets. Mm. Uh, So all sorts of uh, completely, not just 
uh, immersive, but a, a digitization of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, I think, put it in plain terms when they said, in the metaverse, you're going to be able to walk on the moon in your pajamas. So mm-hmm. think about that sort of virtual world where you can, uh, Erica Nardini has talked about this, you can try on clothes, um, as uh, some younger kids do on specific platforms that are already engaging in this metaverse concept. You can own your own virtual house. You can, what Zuckerberg has actually uh, laid out a vision for, you can worship in the metaverse. So instead of going to church, you now uh, physically and engaging in that um, that body-soul composite, that most, uh, at least a Judeo-Christian understanding of what worship consists of, no, you will only do it virtually. And in some instances, you'll do it without legs with your half-digital avatars that, uh, that Zuckerberg himself uh, displayed when he was rolling out this concept. Mm. So it's that all-encompassing virtual world. Yeah, there's going to be a mix of what is meat space, the physical world, and the virtual world. That's the augmented reality concept. But pretty much this is going to be a, in my mind, a totalization of control of your life in the future. Uh, So it basically, in a nutshell, means a lot for Facebook. Yeah, I mean, that is a lot to unpack here. I mean, it sounds like this is a a comprehensive reform of just like how people would live their own, like their everyday lives. You know, you mentioned virtual reality, augmented reality. That's not something that you stop at the home. That's something that extends out into the real world itself. Given that there is so much going on here, what is Mark Zuckerberg's rationale? What benefit does this explicitly give Zuckerberg? So I think you might have seen some reports, especially they were evinced in the Wall Street Journal expose, which is the, remember, the whistleblowers mm-hmm. documents who she leaked a trove of documents, a lot of internal research that Facebook took it upon itself to conduct um, and the results therein. So out of this Wall Street Journal expose, we sort of found, yes, these platforms are toxic to users. Mm. Uh Female users, teens in particular, you saw all the stats on that. One in three, Instagram made uh, American teenage women's body image worse, Mm. Um, that kind of thing. And you can go and and look back at the Wall Street Journal. They have all of those details listed and um, encompassed in their Facebook files, uh, documents. Um, So I think that is, is worthwhile. So besides that, what came out of those that trove of documents was the fact that uh, Facebook is hemorrhaging their teen uh. users. So and they're also targeting preteens specifically mm. because they know they're losing their purchase on this demographic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said tweens were sort of ripe for uh, as as a market demographic yeah. for them as a as a target. Um, now Zuckerberg has come out and said we think young adults are our north star. So this is mm. eighteen to twenty nine year olds. He's talking about in this instance. Think of people who look at barstool sports. Um, I mentioned the CEO, yeah. Erica Nardini. Uh, those people that they're they're getting on TikTok and that are sort of surging ahead when it comes to capturing uh, that base. But but that hemorrhaging that I talked about, uh, Facebook's internal research from those Wall Street Journal whistleblower documents, uh, they basically said that they were they lo- they were expected to lose an additional forty five percent of their teen usership by twenty. 
2023. So they know that they're losing it to Snap uh, or Snapchat, rather, uh, to TikTok, um, to other platforms that are Mm. more popular with uh, the young kids these days. And they know that they need to appeal to them to a different degree. Mm. And if that equals uh, gaming, uh, so things people that are younger people are more interested in, that kind of thing, then they're sort of leaning into that. Uh, The whole NFT concept that people are so excited about for now, um, they're leaning into that as well. So the metaverse, hopefully, in Zuckerberg's mind, I believe, is going to sort of scoop up uh, the people that they're losing on their um, Facebook-named regular social media platform. Interesting. I'm curious, actually, uh, I'm really glad that you mentioned that report that came out about Instagram specifically, that it it was reported that uh, these platforms are toxic for mental health, specifically for younger girls. Do you think that maybe this metaverse will also have that impact on people? Just we've seen with the the current tech platforms that it has this impact. How does that affect people's mental health now that it's just everywhere? Oh, yeah. I don't see that it can't. Um, in fact, I think this is the next step in the dehumanization process mm. when it comes to, like I said before, the totalization of control. You keep your entire life in the digital world. What does that mean? It means it can eat more easily be controlled mm. by especially companies that have these great concentrations of power and have the proven uh, capacity and willingness to really abuse that power mm. that does not necessarily redound to the benefit of human flourishing. And yeah, that's laid bare by the trove of leaked documents where you see the impact that it's having on their children. Facebook itself knows from 2019 to 2022 the impact, the toxic impact that it's having on teen girls. Mm. They're very aware of this. So I think this is just another uh, supercharged step in that process. When you're talking about instead of people going to church and building community, you have that ersatz conception Mm. of what a community is if you worship digitally online through your digital avatar. And I I would like to come back to this this concept that I think conservatives should be very interested in, that body-soul composite Mm. concept that is, you know, deeply embedded in Judeo Christian philosophy and ideology. You know, we're not just our digital avatars. You know, we're not right, just right. our bodies. We're not just our souls. We're both. And when you take the the soul out of it, when you take the body out of it physically too, then then what are we? But right. these just digital uh, floating, you know, creatures with yeah. with no real links to each other. Yeah. And you know, my mom used to tell me, life is all about the people, right? And when you're in the metaverse, it's not about the people at all. It's about uh, I don't even know what it's about, but it's not real. So I I think, yeah, the toxicity um, in terms of, you know, hard data and and whatnot. Yeah, we'd absolutely see the effects of, um, you know, what worshiping online looks like. Look at the lockdowns. Mm. You know, a lot of people have already fallen away from church. And when they just worship on a screen, we all know that that is not fulfilling, that Mm. that is not what we were made for. And it's just this replacement. It's a poor version of what I think uh, Zuckerberg and all of these technologists espousing techno-solutionism to all of our problems um, are are, are promising. That is a fascinating point. I hadn't even thought of this concept. We were talking about this a little bit earlier before we started recording, but the idea of a kind of cyberpunk-esque, like, you know, you are no longer a person, you are part of the machine, you are part of this big technological space now. And I, I just think that is horribly scary. Exactly. And 
You know, I am not somebody who thinks we should, you know, return to scratching a living out of caves and necessarily uh, eschew all technology whatsoever. Um, I do think we have uh, the return component is important mm. and we should sort of return to what, as conservatives especially, uh, made us successful in this country. Um, you know, family, faith, mm. all of those foundations, extremely important, not decrying that whatsoever. But I do think that there is a way to sort of dig out of this through technology. Mm. And that's to make sure that technologies are decentralized, mm. uh, to make sure that the user has more control rather than this top-down concentration of power visiting whatever ad hoc vague rule they want on right. the users of their platform. And I think we talked about practicality in the beginning. That has a very practical application when it comes to policy now. Mm. Uh, these companies should not be aggrandized everything to themselves and then abusing that concentration of power, especially when the individual, the little guy, uh, wants to be able to speak freely. They want to be able to voice their political viewpoints. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen, especially since the election cycle of 2020, how that can be used to, to put the thumb on the scale of our electoral process. Um, I'll go into you know some of the data that the Media Research Center uncovered, yep. and this was as early as November 2020. 20 after the Hunter Biden New York Post laptop story was actively suppressed on Twitter and Facebook, mm -hmm. Media Research Center found that one in six Biden voters would have changed their vote mm -hmm. had they been aware of information right. that was actively suppressed by these companies. Mm -hmm. So uh, recently, McLaughlin and Associates came out with another survey where they said 52 percent of Americans thought that that social media companies in particular, their censoring of the Hunter Biden laptop story constituted election interference. So we're seeing how these big tech companies actually abuse their power. Right. And I, I don't see any reason for them to stop doing it if conservatives don't say enough is enough, especially as all of life starts to bleed into the metaverse, which, right. you know, people are pushing from a business perspective. Uh, there is a study that I'm probably going to fumble right now. But the bottom line is the metaverse was mentioned seven times in the mm. press last year. And now um, recently it's been I mean, that has increased uh, just I, I don't want to say tenfold because I'm not quite sure of the numbers, but everybody's talking about it to the tune of over 100 at least mentions of right. the metaverse now. Everybody wants a piece because they see that this is, in fact, the future. Mm. Uh, but I think we have a duty to sort of resist it and move towards the more privacy-preserving technologies that are going to allow people to to talk without worries of self-censorship or censorship from the big tech companies coming down upon them. Privacy was definitely a concern that I thought about when I was researching this topic. I mean, one of the movies, let's, let's go back to cyberpunk again. Um, one of the movies that it really evoked for me was Minority Report, where this idea of this omnipresent surveillance system that is funded and powered by a, a system of tech and like augmented reality that just is inescapable. I mean, are we at that level? Is that even possible? Or like, is that the kind of privacy concerns we're talking about? So we're not there yet. Um, when I think people want to see a demonstration 
of the bleeding edge of these digital surveillance tools turned mm. inward on their populations, clearly take a look at China. Mm. Um, take a look at what they're doing, especially in Xinjiang. Um, a lot, much has been made of the human rights abuses, the genocide that's occurring there against the minority Uyghur population. Mm. Uh, very important. But the fact that this genocide is tech enabled mm. should raise people's eyebrows and I think should get a lot of attention. Uh, it doesn't in some circles, I would say in my circles, but right. not necessarily among the greater American populace. And one thing that Human Rights Watch actually did, um, a, a researcher there helped reverse engineer what was called an integrated joint operations platform. And what that basically did was give officials the opportunity in the palm of their hands right. to integrate data like how much gas or electricity is used in a house, mm. uh, how much, even how much toilet paper is used, what doors are used, and it all sits there in their palm and they're able to make assessments from all of that data. Mm. Uh, there's data doors that grab information off SIM cards when you pass through them, all sorts of uh, tech-enabled surveillance that are really a warning sign to freedom lovers everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and not just that, but the social credit system. Uh, this was originally pilot programs that were more binary. They had blacklists and red lists of people if they sort of displeased the government, if they jaywalked in some mm. way, then they would be prevented from having access to certain services. Um, there's ways that they, you know, don't get government subsidies if they're on a blacklist. They don't, they're not allowed to buy train tickets if they're on a blacklist, right. um, all in, in the digital world. So there's still a lot of back and forth among researchers on how heavily something like artificial intelligence factors mm. into these determinations. Um, but we do know that at least the seeds of these pilot programs are there. And if they're able to sort of fuse disparate data sets together and integrate that data and parse through it with new technologies mm. like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and develop insights, then that potentially gives uh, the then the ability to scrutinize dissenters, to mm. uh, scrutinize uh, what, you know, what would be enemies of the state. So if anyone wants to see what a surveillance state that's terrifying looks like, just look to China. Um, what troubles me the most when you say, are we there? Um, I'm starting to see these surveillance tools turned inward on the American population, mm. or at least the seeds of this sort of blooming now, which is extremely troubling to me. Mm. And I think this is taking place already in the the physical world. You look at the, the National School Board Association right. letter and domestic terrorists, right? And now the, uh, the tags mm. of terrorism that are being right. used to label parents who uh, don't buy into the uh, critical race theory teachings in our public schools. That, to me, when you start to use counterterrorism tools uh, and look look inward at a domestic U.S. population, what will easily follow is, you know, what these tech companies are doing. Right. And I myself, having worked on the counterterrorism analysis team for global security at Facebook, uh, you're sort of starting to see that happen in the digital world as well. Mm. Um, if you look at the global um, internet forum for countering terrorism,
Buddhism, Gift CT, they have, and this was something, you know, they have uh, former Facebook employees there and uh, people who have worked the digital counterterrorism problem for a while. They're now expanding their database to include uh, far right or at least right leaning what they call extremism. Mm. And they're, they issued a report, um, I believe it was la- or last year, that said that this report from GIFCT uh, wants to include white supremacist uh, content and mm-hmm. whatnot in order to right the wrongs of bias and discrimination in the counterterrorism right. profession in part. So when you see, you know, white supremacy, domestic extremism, uh, right-leaning terrorism sort of thrown about, my mind goes to, okay, this is what happened when mm-hmm. our counterterrorism, one part of our counterterrorism apparatus in the justice system was used within five days of that National School Board, School Board Association letter uh, by the Department of Justice to target regular parents. People in the mainstream, you wouldn't even consider some of these people conservatives. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people, especially those who maybe voted for Yunkin based on his anti-critical race theory stance, you know, these people would consider themselves, you know, regular Democrats, right. maybe even left of center uh, originally. But uh, when you start to expand that pool of potential domestic extremists to encompass, you know, run-of-the-mill conservative content and even uh, stuff that's farther to the left than that, then I think we're in a troubling space. And I'm starting to see the manifestations of that in the digital world among tech companies, and that worries me gravely. I th- I mean, it sounds horrific. It sounds really, really scary what we're, we're in for, possibly. But we are at, I think, the point where Pandora's box has been opened. You mentioned at the very beginning, uh, you're not in favor of like stuffing the tech back in the box. It's out there. It's using, we're using it. Like you, you can't just put it away. Given that there are tech companies that are, you know, using this power to surveil American citizens and to, to censor, and there's governments like you've seen in China that are also using this technology to the detriment of their citizens, what is the policy prescription to make sure that doesn't happen here? Yep, that's a great question. And But I, first, I want to say something that I, I forgot to say initially. It's the symbiosis between the federal government and these big tech companies that is also very, very worrying to me. And the actual data point that we have for that is Jen Psaki, when she stood up mm. at the White House podium and said, there are 12 people on uh, Facebook and these social media platforms that purvey 65% of the disinformation on, I think she was talking about COVID uh, misinformation, which which we know is a catch-all at this point for anything that disagrees with the leftist narratives being promulgated by Saki herself and Joe Biden and everyone who basically pulls that line. So when they say that and within a month Facebook takes down all of those accounts Mm – there's there's a problem there. So that increasing symbiosis between organs of the state and these private companies, really troubling. And we don't even have to get into, you know, potential end runs around the Fourth Amendment when it comes mm. to outsourcing surveillance to uh, companies like Clearview AI using their facial recognition software to actually put uh, U.S. citizens in jail for walking through the Capitol on January 6th, that kind of thing. Uh, that's, that's a whole nother can of worms, but it all is part and parcel to the fact that these tech companies are being directly responsive to organs of the state. Um, Mm. Very troubling. So in terms of policy prescriptions, 
you know, I might go out on a limb here, but I don't think that all of the solutions lie in Washington, D.C. As our new incoming president says, you have to have a beachhead here in D.C. And there is a role for, um, you know, the Congress and federal government to play in uh, ameliorating uh, some of the effects that big tech has had on uh, conservatives and the American people in particular. Uh, But solutions need to be found outside of the district in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And that starts with, you know, a return to federalism. Mm -hmm. I think some of the states are positing some great uh, legislative proposals. You even had uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida institute in his uh, election security bill that no Zuckerbucks were allowed in Florida. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg can't cede those hundreds of millions of dollars into specific local elections like mm. he did in the 2020 election. Um, additionally, uh, you have certain uh, AGs like Ohio uh, suing, uh, saying Facebook really uh, constituted a breach of contract when they promise one thing, but the platform delivers another, which is toxicity to uh, teen users. You know, mm. uh, that there's a common adage in the tech policy community where uh, if you don't, if the product is free, you are the product. Right. So that's uh, Uh, what the AG in Ohio alluded to as well. So states are taking it upon themselves. Texas is doing this uh, to rein in the power of big tech. That's one way of looking at the problem. If you want to get into the the policy wonkiness, federal government stuff, uh, we at the Heritage Foundation believe in the reform of Section 230 of Mm. the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which basically, in in a very broad nutshell, relieves these tech companies of liability for content posted on their platform. So the publisher versus platform debate. Uh, Section 230 says that these are platforms and not publishers. We argue that in the instances where these tech platforms act as publishers, like Twitter editorializing on its – its feed, then I think they are they should be stripped of their mm. immunity from um, you know lawsuits effectively. So mm. there's been talk about private right of action, um, letting the people actually sue these tech companies when they are acting as publishers and not platforms, when they are influencing uh, the information that you see in a way that newsrooms do. Um, so so definitely let's reform Section 230 to align with Congress's original intent. You know these were the 26 words that created the internet. Great. We love uh, the flourishing. We love to see a genuine free market. You know, Mm. we want these companies to compete and let the best one win. Uh, But when these companies are, they'd have an unfair advantage. Um, And, you know, Section 230 is a government intervention. So let's uh, let's readdress that. Um, And then I think civil society is critical here, too. Grassroots Mm. are extremely important. Again, parents looking at this need to say enough is enough. Um, Let's generate the enthusiasm that the anti-critical race theory movement generated Mm. among the grassroots. I think when parents, you know, lobby their states and their state legislature to um, rein in these companies and not just in the red states, but in other states as well, that would be a great thing. And they need to push these companies to enact more transparency. Because that's the one of the biggest problems, the lack of recourse and the lack of transparency in these companies based off of their behavior, their practices. Um, they're not going to tell you anything if they don't have to tell you anything. Right. Um, there have been a couple instances. Um, I would actually even say that Facebook has been – 
fairly decent um, about issuing transparency reports, but mm-hmm. at the same time, they don't tell you much. They throw you a bone, they check the block, and um, you're able to see what they want you to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, and I would argue most importantly, which harkens back to what we've talked about before, is building anew. Mm-hmm. And going to be very difficult. First mover advantage, uh, network effects, these are huge when it comes to technology companies, right? There's a there's a technical component to it at well, as well. You look at Google, they've been able to collect a high volume and variety of data for years and years and years uh, before, you know, most search companies, if they're getting started today, mm. they're able to refine their algorithms and give you a great product because they've had the time to do it and that technical advantage as well. Right. Um, but... I think conservatives have to start somewhere. Uh, You look at specific companies like Peter Thiel, J.D. Vance, investing in Rumble, which is a YouTube competitor. Great. That allows conservatives to at least have redundancy. So if they have a video on YouTube that's going to be pulled down, put that video on Rumble as well. Mm. Um, And, you know, I'm not stumping for a specific company, but the alternatives that actually contribute to what should be a genuine free market would be useful. Um, Martina Vila is doing this with RightForge. This is... They're creating a cloud hosting infrastructure um, and services so that something like what happened with Amazon Web Services and Parler can't happen again. Mm. Because we know that the real story behind uh, Parler wasn't Google or Apple kicking them off at the higher level of the stack at that application layer, digital platform layer. It was actually at more of the mid-tier layer of the stack when cloud hosting services by Amazon were pulled, Amazon Web Services were pulled from Parler that it was lights out for them. Mm. And the platform as it was originally conceived uh, didn't exist. So that's huge to get into the middle part of the digital stack and create those services too. Um, I would argue conservatives have to look more at the foundational layers of the stack as well, like mm. internet service providers, because take the Texas anti-abortion law. Look at GoDaddy. GoDaddy refused to host websites that were supporting that Texas anti-abortion law because of ideological perspectives. There's no, mm. I mean, come on, like that. that is exactly right. why they did it. And so if we don't have people who hew to the real, true, democratic, free speech promises of technology and create those internet service providers with the real devotion to freedom of expression, mm. we're going to be lost. The GoDaddy, it's going to happen again. Mm. AWS going to happen again. We've seen this at smaller e-commerce um, levels as well. Um, Shopify refusing to host any uh, Trump's merchandise after January 6th. You've seen it with Kickstarter, an online fundraising platform mm-hmm. refusing to host um, more conservative-minded films. You've seen this with PayPal. Uh, they partnered with the uh, Anti-Defamation League, and they are, again, targeting domestic extremism. We know now what that means. It doesn't necessarily mean the real bad guys. It means conservatives or people who don't buy into leftist narratives. So as there's a whole digital world out there that conservatives need to be wary of uh, getting kicked off. Uh, you know, clearly uh, they're, they're constricting our digital lives and life has you know, digital characteristics now. And it's going to, if we have something like the metaverse, right, right. Uh, think about what that aspect of control can look like. So conservatives need to build with the full uh stack in mind and look at the ISP level, look at um, cloud hosting services, look at digital platforms themselves, and just start building a new at the very least for that redundancy capability so you don't lose everything you have by relying on um, 
companies that can pull the rug out from under you in a second because of ideological differences. Excellent. Before we wrap up, I wanted to quickly ask, is there a website or a resource that you recommend our listeners check out if they want to learn more about this topic? Yeah, sure. We've consolidated most of of the work in our commentary on big tech um, at Heritage uh, dash big tech. So mm. take a look at our, our technology tab on the heritage.org website and you'll see some of our writings and most of the commentary that we have. We have uh, a whet your appetite for a future publication. So we've got some of those coming out. And mm. now that we fully built out our center for tech policy, we are firing on all cylinders. So stay tuned. Heritage.org is where you can find a lot of our work. And yeah, come join us. Come help us in this fight because it's going to be one long into the future. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. That was Kara Frederick, a Heritage Foundation Research Fellow in Technology Policy, focusing on big tech, as well as a former member of Facebook's Global Security Counterterrorism Analysis Program and a former team lead for Facebook Headquarters Regional Intelligence Team in Menlo Park, California. Kara, it was fantastic having you on the show. Always. Thanks, Doug. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.